You have to listen from the Holy Spirit. If he impresses this message on you, it'll be a help. I would title it, The Lord Will Fight Even Your Small Battles for You. And I want to read from Moses, uh, from his story uh, in Numbers. Chapter 12, I'm going to read a few verses as a background, and then we'll get back to that. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron, who, if, if you don't remember, are the brother and sister of Moses, spoke out against Moses because of the uh, Ethiopian or the Cushite woman that he had married, for he married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not also spoken by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spoke suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, you three, into the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, You listen now to my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all of mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth or face to face, even apparently unveiled, and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. The cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was like a leper. And Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not this sin upon us, wherein we've done foolishly and wherein we've sinned. Let her not be as one dead whom uh, the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, I beg you, heal her now, O God. And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed for seven days? So let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not until Miriam was brought in again. And afterwards the people were moved from Hazaroth and pitched their tents in the wilderness of Paran. Now, wow. What is the point of all that? Were they racist? Ethiopian woman? Didn't like her because her skin was probably darker. Were they holier than thou? Were they jealous? Why was God so mad that he struck this woman with leprosy? And he didn't relent until the man that she spoke against begged on her behalf. There's a lot in this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts later, but there's a lot in this story that I won't get to tonight. I just want to use it as a backdrop for what is on my heart. We're going to come back to it. Keep those questions in your mind. I'm going to tell you the second part of my message, and this is what I thought about calling it, How to Have a Miserable Life. (laughs) Now, that's what I've been doing the last couple weeks, How to Have a Miserable Life. And I didn't even realize it. 
These will tie together, I believe. The first point, there's ten points. Maybe I should write a book that says ten steps to having a miserable life. These are not in order of the most important or the worst. They're just in order of how it came on my mind as I thought about it. The first step to having a miserable life. Focus on the impossibilities of your current situation. Or in other words, lose hope. What does scripture tell us? Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Faith, hope, and love are the only things that remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. All through Scripture, especially the New Testament, is this idea of hope being something that we can't see with our eyes, we can't grasp with our hands, we can't hear with our ears, we can't taste with our mouth, and yet we know it intuitively and we feel it in our spirits. We know what hope is. And the enemy, and I'm going to get to him, what he does, but he puts these thoughts in our mind and he distracts us and he harms us and he makes us focus on the impossibilities of a current situation. Now part of how that works, part of what's been in my heart is we've got this desire, and this is personal for this congregation, this part. The rest of this message might benefit some other people, but we want to get something done. And we just heard a message from Brother Bob, and, and I'm, this, this message tonight is not to counteract or speak against anything he preached. It's to be, I think, a balance to it. He said we need to get some inertia, some movement going. Uh, a, a rolling stone, a rolling rock is easier to guide than just pick up and move. I agree with that. But... Movement can be empty. It can be vain. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. In other words, if we wait on God, we will have hope. He has to show us what that means. So first step to have a miserable life, focus on the impossibilities of your current situation. The second step, I've been doing this too. Take up a yoke not made for you. What does that mean? Most of us aren't farmers, but we've seen uh, movies with oxen plowing a field or maybe seen the Amish doing it uh, with, with oxen. A yoke is that wooden harness that goes over the neck of, of an ox and next to another one and connects them together. And if it fits them appropriately, it helps them do the job they were made to do. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. He says, and learn of me and you will find rest for your souls. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet, if you all are anything like I am, I think this is maybe the way all humans have a tendency to be. We take these yokes upon us that weren't even made for us. And we start begging God to, well, actually we don't even do that because if we were really begging Him, we would give the yoke back to Him. We just start carrying it around thinking we can fix somebody's problem for Him thinking we can fix a problem for ourselves, thinking that some burden that's not our own that we can carry and repair and manage and fix. And we can't. We can't. So you want to be miserable, carry around a burden God didn't give you. 
third way to have a miserable life. Worry. Worry. You ever worry? I don't. Some people are predisposed to more worry than others. Some people have an anxious disposition. You can see this in little children that are two years old. Some of them just have an anxious disposition. Some of them have a happy-go-lucky disposition. But I think all people have the capacity for inappropriate worry. What is worry? Jesus says, take no thought for the morrow. What you'll eat, what you'll put on, where you'll live. I just tried to preach about this idea of God being so aware of the tiny little details of our lives that he knows all the hairs on your whole head, your face, your nose, your ears, the whole thing. He knows every time sparrows land on the ground. And will he not much more take care of us, oh, us of little faith? That's what Jesus said. He said, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the grass, which today is and tomorrow's cut down. If God takes care of that, won't he take care of you? So you want to be miserable, worry. Now, how do you not worry? I don't know. You can go to a psychiatrist and get some Xanax or one of other myriad of drugs. You could become an alcoholic. Every day in my job, I see people who try to cope with worry and, and, and regret in that way. But they don't ever get any better. You could try to pretend you're not worrying. You could try to get rid of the worry. <laughs> you could try to self-manage all of that. You know what? You just have to give up and give it to God. It's the only way. The fourth way to have a miserable life. Plan. <laughs> and then expect God to behave according to your plans. Now, this is not in contradiction to the teaching of Scripture to be diligent. It's not in contradiction when James tells us, uh, well, actually, this is how he describes it. Go to you that say tomorrow or at such and such a time or next year we'll buy and sell and go to a place and win. That's what that Scripture means. King James translates it, get gain. But he says buy and sell and win. In other words, I'm going to step on whoever I have to to have worldly success. He says you better watch out for that because your life is a vapor, which today is and tomorrow is poof, gone. And that vapor is not like a big fog. It is like your breath on a cold night. Poof, poof, gone. That's how our lives are. Is there an appropriate level of planning? Sure. I don't get up in the morning and walk to my car with no clothes on and wonder why people look at me funny when I got to work. You have to have a little bit of planning to have a, a reasonably sane life. If you're going to a job interview, you want to know what the company does that you're interviewing for. I don't just get up here and try to preach, and I haven't looked at my Bible all week, and I haven't prepared one drop, and I, I'm just going to start talking, and whatever comes, God is just filling my mouth. No, there is a, an amount of planning that is necessary, but when it becomes harmful, when it makes you have a miserable life, is when you start to unconsciously feel that your plans are actually going to make the world okay. And really, if our lives are just a vapor, just a breath, just... What is anything that we do going to affect? 
Now, I say that not in a negative, pessimistic way, but in an unburdening way. And I want you to hear this. Maybe I'm the one who needs to hear it first. But anybody who needs to hear it, listen. What difference are you really going to make? Now, on the flip side, a handful of men turned the world upside down. You can make all the difference for eternity with God's help. But otherwise, what do your plans do? Who cares if you pay off your mortgage in 12 years instead of 30? Why does it, does it, I mean, really, is that going to give you peace? Is that going to fix the world? Is it going to make your life all how you want it? One more thing on that that I have to mention. You know, maybe some of you are wired this way. Uh, we lay in bed at night, think through all this stuff, <clears throat> damage control, planning, worrying, whatever you want to call it, and then <laughs> we wonder why God doesn't do what we figured out that he should do on our pillow at night. Because his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. He's smarter than we are. He knows better than we do. He sees things we can't see. Another way, if you want to have a miserable life, we do this unconsciously. Put God in a box. If, you're, if you know the Lord... You want to try to serve him. You want to have a miserable life. You decide. Now, when I say a box, that's a metaphor. I mean a, either a religious constraint. God is bound by some teaching that you got from growing up in a certain kind of church. God is mean. A lot of people learn that from religion. Their religious box is God is mean all the time. He's going to get me if I don't behave. And they serve God or they think they serve God not out of love, not out of reverence, not out of a deep emotional or spiritual desire to know God. They serve Him out of this sense of, if I don't, He'll get me. Did you know that's not service? That's not the kind of godly reverence and fear that Scripture teaches. There are many other ways we can put God in a box. We can limit Him. Do you think that Moses thought that God would rise up and fight his little family battle for him? I mean, I read that and I think, so what? They made fun of him. <laughs> and that's kind of, but there was more going on. and There was something more there that God presented that they were speaking little of the man that he had appointed as a special leader of his people. As a side note, this is just something to think about. I've heard preachers wield passages like that as weapons against the congregation. <laughs> you better watch what you say about me. God will punish you. I'm not saying that. There may be some truth to it, but that's not the point of that passage. We think about God fighting these big battles. We think, for some reason, it's kind of like the national deficit. Nobody really knows what a trillion dollars is. Until you start talking about it in dollar bills stacked up for miles or many other analogies. And so when we talk about God fighting some abstract spiritual battle, on some level we can say, yes, God will fight our battles. Or if we think about God killing 100,000 of the enemy's army in the Old Testament without any swords. <laughs> I remember seeing in a commentary one time, the commentator so, well, that, that wasn't, God didn't do it with angels. He, he did it with uh, mice and the bubonic plague. <laughs> and I thought, 
that's more of a miracle than just killing them with angels. Where do you get all the mice from? I mean, controlling enough mice to, to bite 100,000 soldiers or however many it was? I mean, this is the kind of stuff people come up with because God is in a little theological box they learned at religious boot camp. I'm not opposed to education. But if your education makes you think you're smart enough to figure God out, you better watch out. God will not be confined to a box. He can't be confined to a box. Solomon, who had a desire to build a temple to enhance or or magnify or um, put on display the glory of God, he said, the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I built. And you think God's going to stay inside of one of our little mental or, or emotional or theological boxes? He's too big. He's too big for that, too powerful. Next way to have a miserable life. And you'll like this one, Brother Hackett. Be hard on yourself. You want to be miserable, be hard on yourself. God used a pretty unlikely person to remind me of that at work last week when I was just, I was miserable with my job, overwhelmed, frustrated, exhausted, stagnant feeling about life, stagnant feeling about church, stagnant feeling about everything. That's how I felt. And, and I, I was just, I guess it was very evident. And she said, what do you think God wants from you? Oh, I knew the answer because I preach it all the time. He wants to know me and he wants me to know him. Period. The end. I believe that with all of my heart, but my mind forgets it. I believe, I know, I feel it inside right now. The whole purpose of life is to know God. The end. Period. We live in this life to learn how to get to know God, to understand Him better, to be in His presence. And that way when we're in heaven, we'll be better manufactured to experience that for all of eternity. That I, Think about this. I've preached it before, but think about it. That central part of you that we call a soul, there's a part of you, whatever you call it, however you define it, that God has sealed to the day of redemption and that is never going to taste death because you have already died to sin and the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to you, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you and that part of you, whatever you call it, is what God has sealed and it's going to pass from this life into eternity with what it learned here. You think your choices don't matter. You think the decisions we make don't matter. See, we can be either making ourselves into people that are better fit for heaven, or maybe we won't enjoy it quite as much as we could. Be hard on yourself. Oh. But you ask yourself this question, what does God want from me? Maybe your answer is exactly the same as mine. But you know what I was stressing about? And on top of all the things I told you, I, I have this really deep desire for real financial freedom, real independence from this silly rat race hamster wheel that we do every day. And maybe most people, if they sit down and think about it, would have the same desire. 
let's see, I put it on myself as a yoke that I wasn't meant to carry to that extent, as a timeline that was supposed to happen a lot sooner than it might happen. It may never happen. And who cares? I mean, I don't want to spend my whole life in a cubicle. But if I do, I'm not going to live that long anyway. I mean, if I live 120 years, like you want to, still a vapor, boom. It's over. Then what? Then what? And I don't feel negative. I hope these things I'm saying that sound negative don't inspire negativity in you, because that's not how I feel tonight. You want to be miserable, be hard on yourself. You think about this. The hardest person sometimes to forgive is yourself. You might not think of it as not forgiving yourself. But that's what regret is. Regret is not forgiving yourself for a decision you made in the past. Bitterness is not allowing yourself to let go of something that you didn't like. And all these other things that we can go on and on with. You have to forgive yourself. You have to love yourself. You're the only self you've got. And this is where if it sounds like a motivational speech, so what? God's people need to be motivated too. You are the only self you have. And you're all right. You're pretty good. Pretty good self. Think about it. You know, most of the time, I hope this doesn't come across with any unintentional arrogance, but until the adversary gets in my mind and starts putting all these miserable thoughts and patterns in me, and my nature capitalizes on that, if, if I'm focused on the Lord and on what He has designed for me, I'm okay with myself. I kind of like myself. You know, not every day, not all the time. But those times that you just can't stand yourself... That's not what God wants. Now, it might be momentary. You might say, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But then what did Paul follow that up with? I thank the Lord then that I can serve him with my spirit. You might be like Isaiah who said, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a land of people with unclean lips for my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. But then what's the very next thing? God sends a seraphim with a hot coal, cleanses Isaiah so he can serve him in peace. So don't be hard on yourself. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to arrive. You're never going to make yourself worthy of God's love. So if you want to have a happy life, stop trying. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. Think about that. That goes against religious teaching. It goes against our nature. Because we think, you watch a little kid. They labor for their parents' love. Now here's the difference. Here's the difference. God has an infinite capacity for love. Not even the best parent has that. I think maybe on some level, maybe you really could make your parents love you more. But God already loves every one of us the most that he ever could. He already loved us enough to give his only son on our behalf and allow him to die. How could he love us more than that? I've got four more points. 
to have a miserable life. <laughs> this one, I, I mean in all sincerity, is so hard for me. And I don't even realize I do it until later. If you want to have a miserable life, lose perspective. Lose perspective. I'm going to give you this as an example. At, at my job lately, <laughs> I, I said it this way to, to somebody at work. I said, everything about this job is stupid. And I don't feel like I'm being negative. I feel like I'm just speaking the truth. Now, I need a perspective adjustment. Or I need to find something else to do. You want to be miserable, lose perspective. Losing that kind of perspective makes you lose perspective of the big picture. It makes you start to feel like your whole life is stupid. If I spend all this time doing something that I feel like is counterintuitive, even though in the big picture, you know, helping people and giving them money and all that kind of stuff, it's a noble mission, helping veterans who deserve it. I mean, those things are important. I'm not uh, speaking facetiously about that. I'm just telling you how I feel. And how I have felt. And so in those times, now you all have your own examples. The ones of you who, who work in grocery stores or customer service, <laughs> you, you could probably relate. This will put life in perspective for us. The smartest, wisest, and also in some ways the most reckless man who ever lived, Solomon, said... Heat and cold, springtime and harvest, winter and summer. All these things are going to continue. There's going to be seasons. There's going to be seasons of nature. Isn't it neat that God designed this earth with a natural pattern? Now, the pattern's been kind of strange here in Tennessee lately, but we haven't had much of a winter. But he does give us a pattern, so we see... Even nature changing, even nature becoming dormant, going back into the ground, coming out, newness of life in the spring, flourishing in the summer, getting hot, and, and then in the fall kind of calming down. Why? Because our lives, spiritually, emotionally, and even tangibly, are like that. And we can lose perspective of it. He said all things continue as they were. Here's another way you can lose perspective. You can get two, I can do this. You can get too focused on trying to learn. We were talking about that before service. Solomon said, of the making of books, there is no end. He said, a man who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. You ever known somebody who knows so much about one topic that all they can say is negative? Sometimes we've been that way, right? We lose perspective. There's nothing in the world that I know of that's 100% negative. I mean, the Internet's got all kinds of terrible things on it. It's one of the best things that's ever been created. TV's got a lot of bad stuff on it. It's a wonderful way for people to, to watch the gospel and have information transmitted. And we can go on and on. Cars, cars sometimes kill people. But how would I get to work without a car? I don't want to ride a bicycle 34 miles to work or walk <laughs> for several days. <laughs> 
okay, the next way to have a miserable life. And those of you who know me know I, I, I do this. Overextend yourself. You want to be miserable? Try to be emotional, physical, spiritual superman. Try to be everything for everybody. And even if you don't think about it in that light, just try to do more than you can do. You know why? why? Why is it so bad to overextend yourself? Now, for a short term, you can do that. When you're young, it, I think it's a good idea if you can work to work. Not for forever. But even Scripture says it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. I mean, people who are young entrepreneurs starting a business, they might put in 16 or 20 hours a day for a few years. But try doing it for 40. It doesn't work. It's not sustainable. Why? Because you become unbalanced. That's, that's the ninth point, to have a miserable life. Be unbalanced. I had a, a good doctor tell me one time, I, I don't know if I'll remember all the six categories, but he gave six categories of health. And if I remember them, uh, emotional, spiritual, mechanical, like your body and bones, chemical, diet, what you eat, and environmental, I think were the six that he identified. If any of those areas are out of balance, you think back to high school science class, homeostasis. You know what your body is doing? I want to talk about this naturally first, uh, this body that God made, this amazing invention, this living organism, this machine that is full of machines. You know your cells are tiny little machines? It's amazing. Tiny little machines operating all the time. They're purifying and cleansing your body and the DNA is replicating tiny little machines. All the time, your body is laboring to bring itself back into balance. Your blood sugar is too high, it shoots out a hormone to fix it. You're not moving fast enough to get away from something that's about to kill you. shoots out some adrenaline. <laughs> To fix it. Get going! Sometimes maybe you're like me and you overextend yourself too much. So your body shoots out some things that make you tired so you have to rest. I mean, all the time, our bodies, God has designed them to rebalance and rebalance. Now, our spiritual life, our emotional life is the very same exact way. Scripture says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. He says, if any of you desire something from God, James is writing this, let him ask in faith nothing wavering. But then he says, let not that man who's double-minded, who doesn't have faith, let, don't let him think he'll receive anything. In other words, he won't. You want to see useless prayer? Pray without faith. You're not doing anybody but yourself any good. And maybe later your uh, orthopedic surgeon when he gives you knee replacements. The only way to have peace in life is to have balance. And you can't have balance and stability if you know, all your energy is focused on one area without the Lord's help. The last point that I want to focus on just a little bit
If you want to have a miserable life, allow the adversary's lies to consume you. We all have our own personal experiences we can think about. We all maybe know people that so much of their life has been built around lies that the enemy put in their mind, inserted there, and their whole life is shaped by it. We maybe, some of us live seasons of our life as slaves to those kind of lies. We have a culture who spends billions of marketing dollars to reinforce a lie, in particular in young women's minds. A lie from hell that Satan created. That they're not good enough unless they look a certain way. That they're not worthy of love unless they're shaped a certain way. And uh, some of you, I'm sure you men have noticed over the last 30 or 40 years, the desirable shape of a woman has changed a whole lot. I like the one that was around 30 or 40 years ago better. More natural. The one they think everybody wants now is shaped like a 12-year-old boy. It's funny. Now what, happens, what happens if you don't have a physique like that and you can't make yourself? The enemy's given a lie to so many people that says you will never be worthy of love ever. Now, men have our own things in different ways, and, and families have their own things. Churches. See, the enemy could put lies in our minds about our little church. Religious people perpetuate these kind of lies, maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. If you're not growing, God's not pleased. Who said all growth is in terms of material numbers? Sometimes it is. But if that were true, then the largest church in existence should be the most spiritual one. Now you go down to that big old church in Texas sometime and tell me if it's the most spiritual church in the world. If that were the measure of spirituality. There are so many lies, and, and I don't have time to go through every single one of the ones I can think of. I don't want to. But I just want to put it this way. Our adversary, let me read this. Genesis. This is the very beginning of the first battles that men and women had with the adversary. And he's not inventive. He's not original. He keeps doing the same thing over and over, generation after generation, person after person. He recycles his lies And if you know that, maybe it will help us. Chapter 3 of Genesis. The servant was more subtle than any beast of the field. What does that mean? Cunning, sly, deceitful. You've known people who, they could say terrible things about somebody and make you like it. They're so subtle, so cunning. And he said to the woman, Yea, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Tyndale translates it something like, did God really say that? No, I put a modern spin on the language, but all it was was the tiniest seed of doubt. What if he came at her head on, 
calling God a liar outright, it wouldn't have worked. And so our enemy does the very same thing. He puts a little seed of a doubt, and he started with a question. She says what God told her. He says, you sure that's what he really meant? How many of you, God impresses or burdens or puts something on your heart? I've heard people tell me this a lot about God put it on their heart to get up and and say something in particular in a church service to testify. And then later they beat themselves up. Was that really God? Did he really? I said too much. I spoke too long. You drive yourself crazy trying to preach like that. You know what you have to do when you when you preach? If you're going to be sane, which sometimes I'm not. You do the best you can. You leave it. You walk away until the next opportunity. You learn from it. Somebody says, you know, I don't think that's right. You look it into it and, and ask the Lord and, and you correct it if you're wrong. But we can't live our lives with constant uncertainty and a constant internal battle because of a seed of doubt that the adversary planted there. That's a good way to have a miserable, miserable life. Just a couple other points and I'm finished. If you read in Hebrews, it talks about the word of God, the truth, not profiting certain people who hear it because they don't apply it to their lives with faith. And really, most of our problems, I'd say all of our problems are lack of faith. Now here's the problem. Religion has taught just about everybody that faith is something you can drum up when you don't really have it. That faith is something you can self-manufacture. Faith is something you can make yourself believe more than you really do and then God's going to give you what you want. I have a a friend that, uh, I want to say it in general terms, but it was such a powerful experience to me to hear of how God works. He said, I've been having this, this battle for years. And finally, he said, I always wanted to do the right thing. I always wanted to be good for God. I always wanted to serve him. He said, finally, this, this particular burden that I've been carrying, this particular thing I've been dealing with, got so heavy that I just got to the point where I was angry at God. I said, that the first time you were ever honest with him? See, because as soon as he got to that point... Life totally changed. And the very thing that was an impossible obstacle fell in his lap. Coincidence? <laughs> no way. What's the point? What does God want from us? Let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and favor to help in time of need. Do you think God is embarrassed by you telling him when you're mad? Do you think he doesn't know already? You think it does him any good for you to pretend you don't really feel how you really feel? Or maybe when, not when you're mad, maybe when you're hurt, maybe when you're disappointed, maybe when you're frustrated, or when you're discouraged. I, I felt, and I don't know why, really, but I got to the point where this last couple of weeks, I told you I was in a spiritual battle. That's what it was. I got so discouraged that I just, for no reason, just felt like giving up on everything. Work and church and everything. And you know what? I had this little whisper of a prayer. And I didn't really feel like I even pray. So on Monday, I said, Lord, just teach me about you. 
He started impressing in my heart in a way that I can't describe just what he's like. And at the same time, I want to read you this. My sister in Christ, who's also my mama, sent me this message, same day. It said she was talking to the Lord. Listen to this, because this is what God was showing me. And you brothers and sisters, sometimes God can use a, a faithful servant of his to be his mouthpiece. He can. She said, if Satan tries to tell you that any of your time or life is wasted, that's what I was struggling with. Always remember that every irritation and struggle and trial you've gone through has been to make you a better, stronger man for God. Do you all believe that? Every battle of life, this is why I call this message God will fight even your small battles for you. Every battle, every discouragement, every emotional trial, everything that seems little to you or little to other people, God cares about so much. He cared about Moses. And what did that experience do to Moses? My God cares about me so intimately and so personally that he's going to give my sister leprosy temporarily just so she won't pick on me. I mean, there was a lot more to it than that maybe. But Moses had an impossible job, and yet God gave it to him and gave him the strength to do it. And he gave him example after example of his love and his power and his provision. Don't just think about God as somebody who will fight the big battles for you when, when you're up against those enemy armies. Think about him as the one who will fight your little internal emotional battles, your own intellectual struggles. You know what it takes? Surrender. It takes getting to the point where you say, Lord, you have to help. It takes, maybe like it did for my friend, getting to the point where you admit to God you're mad at him. I said it felt scary to feel that way. Does it feel better to be a religious liar? That's scarier to me. God already knows. I'm going to close, and I'll just say this as I do. Don't be miserable. (laughs) I gave you ten real simple, easy, direct ways to have a miserable life. Don't. And remind me next time I do, because I I preach this stuff over and over, and God shows me, and then it's like I completely forget. If If you don't know the Lord, seek Him. Have a happy life. Have a peaceful life. A life of joy.